we in higher education have done by and large a terrible job of having as a core competency, the ability to look at the future and to say, where do we want to be in 10 or 20 years? Obviously we can't know exactly, but you know, we don't have conversations about what do we think our graduates will need in the 2030s or the 2040s, or what does our region need this institution to be in 10 years? And then if you start talking about in innovation in the context of those questions, the things that feel like battlegrounds over, over the, the, you know, what ultimately are really, you know, small details of execution or resource distribution start to seem less important than much bigger decisions that one needs to be making. And we're just generally not set up for that kind of forward-looking thinking. everyone, and welcome to this brand new episode of An Ingenious You, the podcast where we speak with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers. I've been looking forward to today's conversation for a very long time now. Our guests are doing some highly creative work individually in their respective spaces, as well as collectively through a course that they teach together at Georgetown University. I'm pleased to welcome Ashley Finley, who serves as the Vice President of Research and Senior Advisor to the President for the American Association of Colleges and Universities. She was previously the Senior Director of Assessment and Research at AACNU, and also National Evaluator for the Bringing Theory to Practice Project. She's joined by Randy Bass, who is Vice President for Strategic Education Initiatives professor of English at Georgetown University, where he leads the Designing the Futures Initiative and the Red House Incubator for Curricular Transformation. For 13 years, he was the founding executive director of Georgetown Center for New Designs in Learning and Scholarship, and for seven years, vice provost for education. We will include links to their full bios in the show notes, but for now, Ashley and Randy, welcome to the Ingenious You community. Thank you, Melissa. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. So I want to start out by finding out something about each of your backgrounds, and in particular, what inspired each of you to pursue a career in higher education. So Ashley, maybe can we start with you? I'm a sociologist by training. I definitely assumed I would follow a faculty track after getting out of grad school. Um, and landed at Dickinson College, where mm -hmm. I started my career. Terrific, terrific place, wonderful department, and had the opportunity very early on in that process to get involved with bringing theory to practice project, which is actually, um, well, sorry, at the time that was, it was a grant funding project. Um, and we looked at the intersection between civic engagement, students' well-being, and, and, and their learning. And that's actually the project in which I met Randy and started to first work with Georgetown uh, as they conceived of and began to develop the Englehart project. And I would just say for the purposes of this conversation, what that early experience did was it just made the campus much wider all of a sudden. Um, and mm -hmm. I felt very grateful for that my whole career to have had such an early experience as a faculty member where I did see my department, I was working within my department, but all of a sudden I was, I was working with student affairs and I was working with many, many other faculty from multiple departments. I was working with other institutions across, across the country um, and being able to like with Georgetown, being able to take these deep dives. So that sort of much more expansive view of how universities work was really, really informative and humbling early on in mm. my career. Randy, how about you? So my origin story is is kind of quirky in that I decided I wanted to go into higher ed reform before it occurred to me I should become a faculty member first. Um, <laughs> um, so it really begins with my first semester in college, and I, um, you know, had arrived there as like a pre-law econ major, hoping to go into politics. And in my first semester, I took a big twelve credit block course that was interdisciplinary humanities, uh, 14 different faculty taught in this particular program. And I was just completely transformed by the possibilities of what integrative learning could look like and multimedia and et cetera. So I got very excited about education. 
And I walked into the dean's office at the end of the semester and asked if, if they had any internships available or if I could work in the dean's office. And they said, well, you know, actually, we are starting up a new committee and we need um, a couple student representatives. And, um, and they asked me if I wanted to be, I was now a you know, mid-year, first-year student, asked me if I wanted to be a student representative to a committee to create the university's first all-school general education program. So I got invited to be the student rep on a general education reform committee. And I then spent the next seven and a half semesters until I graduated on this committee. And um, in that time, the whole world of higher ed reform, we were part of a national study called Project GEM. I went to conferences with the faculty on this committee. I, I realized there was this whole world of higher ed reform and people who sat around talking about change. And, and that is how I fell in love with the idea that this was a way to help shape the world. Then I realized I would have no credibility in that space without having a PhD in a some kind of academic subject. And so I was an English and history major, so I chose to go to get a PhD in literature, but I always had in mind that I would end up in the reform space. Um, and that was always why I went to graduate school. Yeah. Thank you for, thank you to both for sharing that. Now, Randy, you've been working at the intersection of the scholarship of teaching and learning for a long time. I think the website says nearly 30 years, which is a long time, 30 years plus perhaps. And your CV um, references having started many new things, which I noted, such as Candles, the Center for um, New Designs and Learning and Scholarship, the Designing the Future Initiatives and the Red House Incubator. For the listeners who are not familiar with the work that you've done in this space, can you give us a high level synopsis of the work, including your take on the impact. The through line to everything is really just a, a, what has become a long-term interest in learning and different modalities and different environments of learning. And, and you, I can just see that across my career. Again, in graduate school, had a similar moment where I was just working on my PhD on 19th century American literature, but got involved in this multimedia digital project on 19th century literature and culture. And that opened my eyes to the whole world of digital learning environments and, and met some of the pioneers of interactive multimedia when I realized that you could think about creating learning environments at a very high level and was extremely stimulated by it. So after I finished my doctorate, got the job at Georgetown early on, I was now already involved in a number of digital projects related to the humanities and literature and then at, at Georgetown increasingly became interested in just teaching and technology in general. So when I got my, uh, uh, when I received tenure, I was asked by the provost and the CIO if I would start a center for teaching and technology for Georgetown, this was 1998. So this is still pretty early on the curve. And I uh, by then was involved in a bunch of things enough to know that I didn't want to just create a center for teaching and technology. I wanted to create a comprehensive teaching and learning center with the principles of the scholarship of teaching and learning at the core, meaning that you could take seriously what it meant to inquire into learning and create new designs based on those inquiries. So that's when I founded the Center for New Designs in Learning and Scholarship, and also why it has a fairly long name, because but we wanted to catch all that. The acronym is CANDLES, so that has stuck also. Um, and then I, I was the founding director for 13 years, and I think that grew and became a fixture of campus and has had tremendous impact, though in many ways its real impact was really harvested during the pandemic when it served you know, the entire campus in a very robust way. I was not directing it by then, it was in the capable hands of my successor. And then I evolved out of that, um, you know, about the time that higher ed was being rocked by MOOC madness, this is 2012, 2013, all the disruptive higher education, that particular wave, I had moved to the provost's office by then. And at that point, the institution felt it was important to now, uh, in addition to the teaching and technology, the pedagogy, is to also ask bigger questions about where's the future of higher ed going. And the institution, we decided that uh, the way to take that on was as a design project as opposed to a strategic plan. So we created the Designing the Futures of the University initiative. 
And I would say that, uh, which, which then later became known as the Red House. So that's the same, we just now it's just the brand is the Red House and the unit. And I think the continuity there is that realizing, and I'm sure this is a theme we'll come back to in this conversation, in order to enact real transformation, you need levers at multiple levels. So Candles, the Center for Teaching and Learning is an absolutely critical foundation of a lever for change that supports faculty in every aspect of their daily work, technology, assessment, now inclusive pedagogies, well-being, et cetera. But everybody's daily work, helping people just be better in the classroom and execute um, or to pivot to online to keep things open. But that is necessary but not sufficient for an institution to keep moving. You also need to be thinking at the structural level. So I think about when I moved from Candles to the, what became the Red House, it was moving from thinking about how to effect change, you know, more or less person by person or team by team, to thinking what are the structural conditions that allow people to think beyond their current practices. So the Red House is really set up to not ask how do we help people do their work today or this year. It's asking how are we going to help the university do its work in 10 years and in 15 years? And what should we be doing this year so that 10 years from now, we're really good at something we will have wished we were really good at when that 10 years from now or 15 years comes back. So it's it's there's a continuous spectrum, but it's a very different kind of thinking. You're thinking forward, you're speculating, you're playing with things that are more emergent. So it's still a through line of learning, but it's applied at different levels of scale and with different... Um, calibrations to how you're uh, speculating about the future. Yeah, no, it's a terrific model. Um, I just want to say, and it, there actually is a real red house. It's red on it the is. campus. It is indeed, you, it is, yes. Where you work. Um, but but the fact that it's, it's institutionalized in that way, and you led that work out of the provost's office, which I also think is a really important um, thing to acknowledge because otherwise that kind of work is not easy um, to bring forward on a lot of campuses. And if I just may add one thing to that quickly, yeah, yeah. I think that's that's exactly right. Although I will say it wasn't always easy even leading it from the provost office, but it, okay. it made a huge difference that I was vice provost for education and getting the red house up and running. It was very important to its early years. Now I'm, I'm, I'm solely leading the red house and from a vice president's position. Um, but that uh, it also is very important that um, I think to the leadership acknowledging that the university needed a core competency of a unit whose job it was to push the university farther and faster than it might go on its own. That just the way that corporations might have an R&D division in which they're trying to disrupt their own processes in order to make their products much better. The idea is that if you're not pushing the boundaries of your own practices, then you're actually not really advancing your own thinking enough, especially in an environment like we are now where the it feels like we're almost living in a time-lapse movie. Uh, things are changing so rapidly right now. So, so I think it's, it's really critical that one thinks that you have to have both the capacities to help people do their current work and to think about future work. Yeah, yeah, good. I'll, we're going to come back to that later in the, the conversation. Um, Ashley, let me ask you, um, the work you've done, your research and your practice work on student learning and success centered around high impact practices is especially compelling. When I was provost, we used the high impact practices in a number of really significant ways. And I know we found we found them to be really wonderful, a, a wonderful framework mm -hmm. for thinking about um, student learning and success on our campus. So I'm interested in knowing how you have seen uh, things shift, if at all, in terms of the focus and learning in this, this way, uh, particularly coming out of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, new, any new thinking or has your own thinking changed? Def definitely. I, I love this question, Melissa, because it's the conversation around high impact practices has been going on 
while. I think the the original coup monograph came out 2008, 2009, and um, and quite a lot has been done since since then. And, and you're right, I've spent a good bit of, of my time since then working on high impact practices, researching them. And to build off of something that Randy just said, which is really important, is to think about multiple levers that affect campus change. And I think one of the one of the the most important things to to do, or at least how I've talked about high impact practices, is to appropriately situate them as a lever and not the lever. Um, and that becomes important in terms of not using them as a checklist, not being um, maybe overly proud of yourselves as an institution that you have a whole bunch of them for students to choose from, uh, in part because that it misses the point of how how critical it is to focus on the quality of delivery of the practices. Um, to think about how they are, how they work best in unison, um, mm -hmm. how they work best in terms of thinking about them as a collection of practices uh, and actually assessing them that way. That was there, some of the early work that Tia McNair and I did around our study on high impact practices was simply for the first time putting them in aggregate with each other and looking at cumulative effects. Uh, something that we really hope camp motivated campuses to do to do a bit more of that, but. I think the as much siloing as that happens on campus and, and as common as it is to separate practices into various divisions, the label of high impact practice, I think is very helpfully provided an umbrella for campuses to be thinking about how do you put these, how do you think about them together? How do you think of them as reinforcing efforts rather than a whole set of boutique experiences? that students can find their way into. So that I've always been really happy with, with in terms of it, but I think, I think continuing to press and to nudge on the quality dimensions, the ways that those are being held together. And then some of the recent work that we've been doing on a, at AACNU around civic engagement and community-based mm -hmm. practices. Um, and frankly, the ways in which something like the, that kind of community mindset or the ways in which those practices can be infused into every other high impact practice has also been really important. So if anything, my thinking has only created more complexities around how we think about what these practices mean, how they, how they work in conjunction with each other rather than as isolated endeavors, um, and certainly how we continue to think about expanding them how we expand mm -hmm. the, the list of the 11 that are there now. I've, we've always said that is not a definitive list. It's simply a list of the most pervasive or maybe the, or the ones that tend to be the most, have the most evidence or scholarship behind them. Um, but I have great hopes that we will, we will eventually be recognizing advising as a high impact practice. So if anything, I see more pathways into um, recognizing maybe some other really helpful existing resources on campuses that can be leveraged for even more more and better efficacy. Yeah, that's terrific. I was actually going to ask you about advising. So you you beat me to the to the punch there. So now you co-teach a course at Georgetown. The name of the course is the University as a Design Problem. I'd love to know something about the backstory for this course. So what's the origin, the purpose, who takes it? Uh, how did the two of you wind up co-teaching it? So, so I, I, I teach a course at the undergraduate level that I created, co-created with a, a wonderful co-teacher architect named Ann Pendleton Julian uh, back in 2013 called the University as a Design Problem. So I was teaching an undergraduate version of the course that was more about imagining what the university of the future would look like. But then uh, the Georgetown created a new master's program in learning design and technology. So the students who uh, take that are uh, young and mid-career professionals who are interested in getting a master's, a professional master's degree that really blends the you know, learning theory, design thinking, and uh, savvy with technology and learning environments. So uh, for that uh, master's program, <clears throat> they, I was asked to contribute a course that would be the, the, the course that helped put all of their learning and the other core courses together at the systems level. So they're learning learning theory, data analytics, learning methods, et cetera. But this was the course that helped them think about how did all that fit together into a systems level. 
And so I just decided to give it the same name as my undergraduate course, even though it's it's quite different, um, because it, it was really thinking of the university and it could mean a college, it could mean a system. We just use the university as a construct, but to think of it as as itself a unit of analysis. And um, and so that's that's how it started. And I taught it for a couple of years on my own um, with you know guests and things. But then um, after a couple of years and doing it very badly, I decided I really need <laughs> I really need a co-pilot knows what, that what she's doing. So Ashley and I were longtime friends, and as she said, uh, you know, we share a lot of the same vision, but have some very complementary skills and and experience. And so it seemed like a really good pairing. So we came together, and I believe this is our fourth year. Uh, teaching it together so um so that that's the backstory of the course why is a course like this necessary well i'll, I'll give you an answer uh from the inside of the program and then ashley okay. uh, might and, and i might have other answers too but from the inside of the program the reason why they want this course in the curriculum is that they want the graduates of this program to be at a table, even if they're working for a center for teaching and learning, or they're getting jobs as a learning designer or an instructional designer in some other kind of environment, which is where they all get jobs, they want those people to have the broadest possible perspective. They want them to be able to think critically about all the ripples and contexts that even a very focused learning design would have. Uh, learning design and instructional design can be a very myopic or very recipe-driven uh, uh, professional skill. And that's not what they wanted. They wanted people who could be adept at that kind of learning design, but really uh, could ask questions about broader purposes, about different stakeholders, about understanding the broader ecology that where both the pressures of that ecology bear on the design, but also the role that any given learning experience has on the broader ecology. And so they just wanted students who could think up and down the scales from micro to meso to macro. And that's that's why that course is very important to the program. Um, and now there's probably you know, more to say about why we think this kind of thinking is important to the profession and the sector, but that's that's the programmatic answer. Okay, and by they, you mean the, the faculty of the, the master's degree that you're exactly. talking about. Yes, right. Yeah, the LD, LDT, yeah. so. Mm -hmm. Um, so can you say a little bit about the organizing framework for the course, the key themes, um, how the course works? Randy and I landed pretty early on um, in our work together on the two core questions of the class, which are what makes change in higher education hard and what makes change in higher education possible. And if you take out higher education, you can apply those two questions to anything, <laughs> to any work environment, to any professional situation. Um, and in my mind, the the value of the course lies in even the the empowerment of students to believe that they can they can respond to those um, thoughtfully and systemically. Um, so we really organize the class in terms of those two questions in many ways, and we take on you know we take on some early readings to provide some foundational concepts like wicked problems. Um, what does that mean? We talk about you know, moving from some early bar and tag work, moving from an instructor paradigm to a learning paradigm, kind of, but really a focus on transitions, focus on what is a guiding mindset or paradigm that leads us down one road. What are we working toward? What become the disruptions in that? We've been playing with a framework this semester called the Three Horizons framework that really takes on those in a, in a really nuanced way. I would add that the other thing that I really love about the course that again, took us a little, a little bit of time to evolve into, but what I also find is a great contribution to it is for about half of the time, we bring in external experts from all over the country and all parts of higher education to come in and talk about their perspective as change agents, as people that have undertaken change processes, have dealt with wicked problems, are dealing with wicked problems every day, but are coming from very different, in many ways, very different elements of a higher education structure, whether they're a president, a current sitting president, which we've had, we've had representatives from accrediting agencies, we've had system leaders of the whole state systems, down to faculty who are running maybe a teaching and learning center. Um, 
for our assessment experts, and then also just national people, people that are situated within associations. So I think that in my mind, because higher education is so multifaceted and the perspective of this various stakeholders is so critical to understanding vantage point, what, what sets agendas for people, what become, what become the ultimate objectives, how hard does it become to collaborate when you have very different, not even visions of what the goals are, but very different perspectives on what the problem is in the first place. Um, that is, those are some of the elements that I, hope that we're bringing together for students in this class is actually the even just the exposure to voices beyond and perspectives certainly beyond what Randy and I are bringing to the table. These are difficult days for higher education. Even before the pandemic, higher education was in a free fall. Colleges are closing and merging at an ever increasing rate. Leaders are facing challenges from every direction. No wonder so many experts are calling for a new kind of leadership. The Baypath University Doctorate in Educational Leadership with a concentration in higher ed leadership and organizational studies, affectionately known as HELOS, was created for just this time and purpose. We asked seasoned leaders for their input and then we designed program in response. The EDD program prepares students to become self-aware, effective, adaptive leaders who know exactly how to leverage their institution's strengths and potential to create lasting change and enduring success. All coursework is online and students receive an abundance of personalized support from peers and from our expert faculty. And through the dissertation and practice, our students learn how to plan and implement a change process to address a real organizational problem. If you want to become a catalyst for change in higher education and have an impact, take the next step by visiting our website at baypath.edu edd. go back and ask about the role of the students in the class. They're the ones who are actually doing the interviewing of your guests. Is that correct? That's correct. So that's correct. They yes. have to come prepared to ask questions or yeah. Yes, yeah. Which, We're very much putting them in the in the driver's seat very intentionally to guide these conversations and then open it up for space that um, all students can can ask questions. Obviously this is happening in a in a vert way we're face-to-face -face with the students most mostly now, but um, there's a virtual element to it so that we can Zoom the guests in, makes it very nice. Yeah. Yeah. What a great experience for the students and for the guests. It's, it's I think, you know, for folks who are in those positions, you always learn something when you have to articulate uh, your own thinking around things like this. So that's it's a very valuable uh, learning both ways. Um, I want to come back and ask you about the learning specifically, but before I do that, um, could you unpack a couple of the concepts you've already mentioned? One is wicked problems. The other is wicked systems. So uh, what do you mean uh, by those, those terms? And how does that, how to say a little bit more about how that applies to uh, change in higher education? So we begin by, um, you know, helping the students understand wicked problems. We don't assume that they know that the term really came into being um, early 1970s um, from two people who kind of came out of organizational planning and urban planning, uh, a couple of guys named Riddle and Weber, um, and developed this concept of, of just that there are some problems that are so complex and almost intractable that if you think of them as solvable problems, you're actually going to do far greater harm <laughs> because you, you will think of partial solutions, you'll miss part of the meaning, et cetera. So they, they developed a set of rules or principles or protocols for thinking about problems that are, that are just extremely complex and nearly intractable to take on as a whole. And so it became a very powerful concept and term, especially in the world of planning, but it then took off in other you know, permutations and disciplines. Since that time, a lot of other theorists have done work on the term, in part because it's, it's very uh, easy once you then grasp the concept that some problems are so complex that they don't have solutions to then be left in a state of paralysis. Like, well, what are you supposed to do then once you've said that something is unsolvable? Um, and so many people have come at it 
to try to say, well, this is then what you do after you understand that, including a couple writers that we like to teach, who one of whom, uh, or one team, who has broken down that there's different kinds of wicked problems or different dimensions of a wicked problem, some of which are about cognition. Like sometimes we just don't understand the nature of the problem, but sometimes we understand the nature of the problem quite well, but we haven't analyzed fully what it means in our context, or we haven't really communicated that well, or there's actually political, like we know what the problem is, we may even know what the solutions are, but what makes it wicked is that different stakeholders have very different opinions about what it would mean to go about addressing the problem. So that we also have found that that's very useful to start to ask which dimensions of a problem make it wicked and wicked in what way. So we have tried to help people think about that because certainly inside universities, you know, uh, you know, that is very much the case. In some cases, like you think about something like artificial intelligence, obviously very hot right now thinking about it. We don't actually know that much about what we should be doing. That There's a cog cognitive complexity there. But if you think about something about anti-racism or inclusive pedagogies, we probably know almost as much as we need to know about what would actually create much better learning environments. But there's probably political challenges there of what it means. In fact, even recently, deep political challenges and what it means to apply those things. So it's not about cognitive understanding. It's about a clash of stakeholders. So, so we 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 try to give the students the tools uh, to start to think adaptively about complex situations, or what we might call, you know, because universities or institutions of higher education are complex adaptive systems, we need to give students, um, you know, adaptive tools to think about complexity. And I think I would think Ashley you know, probably agrees that. The, the thing that we really think we're giving students here is a, is a tool set for addressing complexity, being comfortable with uncertainty, and comfortable with what it means to think strategically in a situation that cannot always be controlled or in which progress will be emergent and cannot be engineered. So all of that is very much compatible with the you know 50 year old roots now of wicked problems. It, it was a very anti-solutionist, anti-engineering, anti-over-engineering approach to um, really organic complex problems. Now, when you sat down and first designed the course, I'm sure you had some hopes for what your students would learn. What have you found to be your students' most significant learnings generally? Hmm. That's so interesting. When you started this this question, Melissa, I was like, gosh, I've learned a lot. Like I feel like every year, and particularly now in, in working with the Three Horizons framework this semester, I feel like every year my my own thinking has gotten more sophisticated in terms of thinking through the approaches to complexity and sitting in the complexity. I think, you know, just to underscore something that Randy just said is. It, it does feel like a little bit of a gift to me and, and a really incredible tool to just equip students with the ability to sit in complexity and not, um, not grab at the first solution that, that approaches and rather take more time to not, not a, Riddle and Weber um, advise against not admiring the problem for too long, but but also in the sense that I actually have some sense of trying to get to what the core of the problem is. And I do think as, and I think you know, particularly thinking about the kinds of aha moments that we've seen happen this semester is we've, we've focused quite a lot on what's the mindset that drives a particular way that this wicked problem has been constructed in the first place. What are what are the um, ways in which people are really thinking about the essence of the practice? They're not really thinking about the problem, but they're definitely thinking there's definitely a kind of emanation of that situation or problem out of a way of thinking. And I think it has been really powerful for the students to have to focus on that more than what the issue is, more than what the pro potential solutions are but to really try to distill through all the noise to find what's driving the mindset of what's creating the situation in the first place. 
and and then conversely, what are we what are we going for? What's the way of thinking that we're going for? That's very different than just um, curriculum reform. <laughs> That's very different than just changing a set of requirements. Um, and I think ultimately, again, kind of gets at the heart of that systemic piece that we were that we're trying to to drive home. Sounds like a profound learning experience, Randy. Randy, what have you? Uh, taken away, either in terms of your own learning or what you've observed in your students? Well, it's definitely been a learning journey. I agree with Ashley. And we've, um, we've, we've only, I'll say, enhanced our learning journey by changing the course every time we teach it. Um, <laughs> um, but that also, you know, it, it just feels also true to what we're teaching them that, um, you know, this is a very dynamic space. And um, so, you know, again, using this, this Three Horizons framework, which is a very different way of thinking about um, how you move from a dominant paradigm to an emerging alternative paradigm, has shifted the terms of the course somewhat. Um, mm -hmm. in, in that, I think it still has everything that Ashley said, which is comfort with complexity. And I would say, if there's, you know, the, you know, the one takeaway that we hope everybody is always taken is it's just a lot harder than you think <laughs> to, to enact meaningful reform right. or to meaningful transformation. It doesn't mean you can't get small things done. You shouldn't focus on small things with very robust goals, but real transformation never has a simple solution. So if that's the only thing they take away from them is to just be suspicious of simple solutions for very complicated things, then that'll be a good thing to carry with them wherever they go. Um, but I think that um, what this particular semester shifting to this framework has brought that we haven't had in other semesters is this idea of the paradigm is is becoming more aware of the paradigm that you sit in and how very difficult it is to think beyond it and what it means to think about the relationship between this the paradigm meaning literally just the water not literally figuratively the water we swim in um, but how everything, the credit hour, how we think about grading, how we think about terms, how we think about the hierarchy between teachers and students or what a legitimate credential is, that those are all things that we could fix and address and run programs on, but that ultimately seeing them all as expressions or manifestations of a particular paradigm just completely reframes the way you might even think about how to help faculty think more flexibly about grading. It ceases to, you know, everything ceases to be just a tactical innovation target. And, and you realize that, that there's a genealogy to every single practice that's tied to a much more complex set of forces. And again, don't need to be paralyzed by that every time because nobody wants an instructional designer who wants to talk about the paradigm of modernity every time you say go help this faculty member create a new module right so you have to be able to make those layerings but but you're bringing a very rich mindset to what what any single uh, unit of analysis of a problem is so so i i think really just creating very flexible thinkers and you know we hope that there's lots of resources and role models you think the higher ed leaders provide important role models one way to think about each of the people we bring in as experts is they give a different role model of what it means to think thoughtfully about how to navigate these systems, whether you're a university president or we've had people who come from systems like UT University of Texas or SUNY. They've all made careers of navigating educational systems. And I think uh, students being able to hear a whole succession of successful role model leaders talk about that um, you know, it just all becomes tools in their toolbox. So. Yeah, for sure. So my next question is going to be stating the obvious, I think, but I, I really want to hear your take on this. Um, and that is to speak to the relevance here for institutional leaders and decision makers, especially on the heels of a significant period of pandemic adaptation. So what, what does a uh, or what value does a wicked problems mindset have for the leaders of our institutions and and thoughts about how to cultivate that kind of thinking on a college campus other than Georgetown? This is a great question, Melissa, because there's um, it's not hard to convince 
any any campus or any I've been lots and lots of faculty development sessions and it's not hard to convince people about wicked problems existing or things being too hard to diagnose or figure out what the solutions are all of those things make a great deal of sense I think what I hope the the course does and what we're trying to ac accomplish with the course is build better conversations about what those are and 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 that's coming very specifically off of our experience this semester in, in using the Three Horizons framework as a kind of dialogic tool to encourage those conversations and to have those conversations take on a different level of substance. But, but even if I think reflectively about where I have seen great change initiatives happen on campus and where I've seen great failures of change initiatives on campuses, I think they have been won and lost in conversations. I think they've been won and lost in the discussions that have been created, either because they, because they weren't, in, you know, on the on the negative side because they weren't inclusive enough. They moved too fast. They moved too slow. Um, they never got to the heart of what the what the matter was. So they felt perfunctory and maybe false, maybe inauthentic. They, it's it's really stunning how much is is lost on how you build those rooms and how you sustain the conversations in meaningful and productive ways. And I do think it it's been our work all the way along, but definitely this semester, I think we've really zeroed in much more on what it means to build strong enough conversations to sustain the work. You know, there's there's a ton of great things happening in higher education, but you know, there's some pretty good indicators it's not going so well. <laughs> you know, public opinion is going down. We're being attacked from different sides. Educational attainment for the lowest socioeconomic sector is now maybe ticking up, but it was pretty flat for about 50 years. It's not clear that, um, you know, we're built to pivot quickly for things like ChatGPT and AI, although, you know, Maybe it's a good thing that this is all happening post-pandemic because I think at least our, our muscles are warmed up, <laughs> um, and um, and that change is going to come faster at us. Uh, we know there's demographic cliffs coming. We know there will be disruptions of of uh, climate change. We don't know when the next global health crisis is coming, and um, the ability to think outside the parochialism of our own problems, right? Inside a university, absent of major external forces, we can consider interior parochial problems to be of great magnitude. You know, <laughs> absent of a pandemic that forces us to pivot, we can consider small changes to the curriculum as being battlegrounds. And I think that one of the things about a wicked problems mindset or complexity thinking's mindset is to make sure that higher education gets out of its own head because we will not serve society. We will not play the role that we need to play in society if we are focused only on ourselves. And one of the things that I think I really like about our approach using the Three Horizons framework, but this was true broadly, mm -hmm. is that we almost always think of higher education innovation any innovation, a new curriculum, et cetera, is always its relationship of the innovation to the present, which means its relationship to the past. How is it deviating? How is it slightly different? Or how is it not that different, but it's just applied to something incremental? We in higher education have done, by and large, a terrible job of having as a core competency, the ability to look at the future and to say, where do we want to be in 10 or 20 years? Obviously, we can't know exactly, but you know we don't have conversations about what do we think our graduates will need in the 2030s or the 2040s, or what does our region need this institution to be in 10 years? And then if you start talking about in innovation in the context of those questions, the things that feel like battlegrounds over over the the you know what ultimately are really you know small details of execution or resource distribution start to seem less important than much bigger decisions that one needs to be making and we're just generally not set up for that kind of forward looking thinking doesn't mean we need to lock in in fact it would be anti wicked problems and an utter disaster to say here's what 2035 will be like 
let's just move along, you know, in a strategic plan towards 2035. That would be a terrible idea. But we rarely say, look, we know that the world will be more like this in 10 years. What do we need to be more like when that world comes? Very few institutions have that conversation as a matter of communal dialogue, debate, and let alone consensus. You're really taking us back full circle to where we started the conversation. There at Georgetown, you know, as we said at the outset, uh, you've been able to really institutionalize this kind of thinking and this approach. What advice, if you had, let's say you were speaking to a group of presidents, a group of board of trustees, um, what would you advise them in terms of how to actually do this? How, how to make the kind of institutional changes that would be necessary to get this sort of thinking more into the DNA of a place? I'm going to say it has to begin with leadership, and leadership is, is not everything that's needed. But if leadership has not set a tone, an inclusive tone, but set a tone that a different kind of thinking is needed and a commitment to creating a, a space of one kind or another for a more capacious thinking, a more adventurous thinking, a riskier thinking, um, then nothing will work. I mean, there might be grassroots things that are, you know, build up because people are just trying to survive, but it has to start with leadership. And, and then I think leadership, working with faculty leadership, staff leadership, uh, innovators, et cetera, I think the most important thing to adopt is to recognize that if you're not creating intentional space to think forward, it will not happen. You'll have you'll have people on campus who are committed to doing a good job, who are who are constantly innovating. And I think that's part of the point. There is innovation going on every semester, I won't say with every faculty member, but pretty widely, okay. right? new courses, adapting courses, read new things, introduce new books. That churn is happening all the time. It's just, it's all changing within the current patterns of thinking. So the so if you want to actually change the patterns around change, then you need to create a space that is intentional, that's, that's asking what's next or what's uh, riskier or what's more adventuresome or how can we suspend some of our rules or how can we incentivize people to step out and do different, not just do more. Mm -hmm. So it also part of that creating that space is recognizing that people are fatigued, tapped out, um, tired from the pandemic, oftentimes overworked from course loads, et cetera. So, so you'd have to take it in the context of everybody's work. But I think, so I think there's a number of mechanisms we've adopted at Georgetown over the years that have made the work that we're now doing, I think, at a pretty good level of impact and a pretty good rate of progress. But they're very concrete, you know, a governance committee that's focused on innovation, um, a couple of small, you know, tactical mechanisms that make it easy for us to create and pilot new courses, a um, little bit of incentive money that, you know, allows people some financial uh, um you know, uh, play and wiggle room in order to have the room to do something new. So these things don't have to cost a lot of money, but they have to, they have to create space that tech generally is not there already. And, um, and if you're not doing that intentionally, you're just exhorting the faculty to be imaginative or exhorting the faculty to do new things, then that's going to just wear people out or make them cynical. And you'll get a little bit of activity here and there, but it won't be sustainable. I agree with all of that. I would just add that Randy went someplace that I was thinking too, which is it's not it's not that they're waiting for innovation to happen. It's taking advantage of the innovation that's already that's already in progress or is next next on the list because there are these agitations for general education reform or accredit the accreditors are coming. You've got to identify a QEP. Like I there's a number of different sources. It seems like campuses are change changing but having kind of those change conversations all the time so i'm what i'm thinking about are the ways that we sustain um not quite sustain but try to try to build in these conversations where those areas of change are happening knowing they're coming up all the time so like for example thinking about how do you, how to use fellows 
um, how to use fellows with a wicked mindset approach that could be infused on in multiple committees and multiple areas of campuses so that you have multiple people that are that are kind of agitating in these conversations for a different kind of thinking or a different kind of approach. It's never, it's never constructed that way, right? You have like teaching fellows or assessment fellows. They do kind of train in one kind of specific thing, um, but having a more expansive approach might might actually be really helpful. But recognizing the fact that there are multiple opportunities in terms of required professional learning opportunities all the time on campuses that could be used in this way with these kinds of conversations would be at least a starting point. Yeah, these are great, great ideas. And uh, obviously it does go back to the role of leadership and having leadership uh, with an appetite for more intentionality uh, around creating that space. Um, so. This has been just a terrific conversation. I have learned a lot and really, really appreciate the insights as I know our listeners will. So thank you again so very much for spending this time with me. And I wish you all the best as you go on to revise the course probably once again <laughs> at the probably. completion. <laughs> probably. Thank you, Melissa. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of An Ingenious You. This is Melissa Marsolson, your host. We are very excited about our season four conversations. I encourage you to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on a single episode. And if you like what you hear, be sure to rate us and let your friends and colleagues know so that they too can join the Ingenious You community. I invite you to visit our website for the Center for Higher Education, Leadership, and Innovative Practice at baypath.edu slash chelip, C-H-E-L-I-P, where you will find information about our monthly free Leading Edge Thinking and Higher Education webinars, as well as our just-launched YouTube channel, where you'll find full video interviews with our most highly rated conversations from previous seasons. And while on this site, you can subscribe so you don't miss out on the release of new content and upcoming webinars. That's all for now. Thanks so very much for listening. Music